Look alive, punks, punkettes, and all you fuckers in between. This is Shannon Larner here doing an interview with Eric Larner, the creator, the genius, the writer, the brains, and the beauty behind Die Emos Die. Hey, guys. Thanks, (laughs) Shannon. That was quite the intro. I know I said you could do whatever you want, but... uh... You didn't have to just come in flattering me at the gate. Well, you know, I do my best. So I'm really excited to have a chance to sort of talk through this whole project with you because it has been something that, as your spouse, I have watched consume your life for over a year. So I'm excited to get to, you know, dig in a little bit on some of your inspiration behind it and the whole process. So to start... To start, we have Willow barking in the background, which is correct. She didn't like the podcast. So this is pretty much kind of what it sounded like while we were trying to record because we're upstairs. She's downstairs. She's mad. She is furious. So back to you. We'll ignore Willow in the background. So Die Emos Die is a really fantastic narrative podcast. I guess my first question that I'd love to have you talk a little bit about is why did you choose a podcast for this story? <laughs> um, many, 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 many reasons. Um, <clears throat> I would like to pretend and say like there's some grand elaborate answer. Um, really, really the the true answer I would say is um, we don't have a lot of money just lying around. <laughs> um, nothing is more expensive than a true film production, video, locations, schedules, crew. You get where I'm going with this, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I was looking for something a little low budget, um, but a little bit on the overthinking side of things. I, I do when I choose how I'm going to tell a story. I I want to make sure the medium makes sense for whatever it is I'm doing. So whenever I decided I wanted to do a podcast for budgeting reasons, I wanted to make sure the story made sense for a podcast. Um, Podcast made sense for a lot of reasons. Um, We were in quarantine. Um, No end in sight. I was bored. I really, really wanted to make something. And this seemed like the best way to get something out there. Um, And I had previously, as you know, written the short story, Die Emos Die, which speaking of a medium that makes sense, um, I wrote it as a zine or kind of in the spirit of like a 90s like punk zine, which made sense at the time. Um, But I wanted to kind of expand it. And kind of drawing off of podcasts that I really liked, like Welcome to Night Vale, um, doing it as a radio broadcast just kind of made sense to me and kind of helped the story kind of um, take shape. Cool, cool. So all very good, valid reasons, uh, especially for our budget, which I do appreciate as your partner In crime. Yes. Uh, So I think that one of the most important messages, it seems to be, at the end of Daimo's Die is this, you know, sort of this breaking down of the artificial boundaries that we create between different music genres. And I know that this whole concept of genre in general has been something that you've discussed a lot. You and I have had a lot of conversations about. Of course, it's talked about a lot in the podcast. So how does this idea of music and genre and these boundaries 
how did all of that sort of play into the script? What are your thoughts on it? You know, take it away. Okay, um, we'll take it. We'll take it piece by piece. So I think um, obviously kind of coming into it, I've talked about this. I know in other interviews, if you've listened to other bonus tracks, punk is my favorite genre. Surprise. Um it is my favorite genre. It's something I've loved uh, since middle school when I quote unquote discovered music in the sense that I stopped listening to, you know, what my parents gave me. I stopped listening to just whatever was on the radio and I actually started looking at what I was listening to yeah, and saying. You like developed your own taste. Right. I started finding things um, and that was a lot to do with punk and emo music. Um and I really wanted to kind of delve back into nostalgia. I like exploring um, nostalgia a lot because people like it. It's ready. It's a it's a treasure trove for comedy as well. And I, I really remember um, being in middle school and high school and emo music or the emo genre kind of being a punching bag, like a mm. amorphous punching bag, even to the point where if something... Uh, someone didn't like music, they'd go, oh, it's too emo. Even yeah. if I'm like, that's not emo. Like, that's grunge music. No, it's so emo. It's so <laughs> depressing. I'm like, so if it's depressing and you don't like it, it's emo. And I just remember that being a constant thing where emo just became like a label, like the way old people like to use socialism as just a bad word. And it just doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Um. So I'll take that and and just kind of say as it as I developed the podcast, I thought about all of those ways that people do that. They pick a word and they start using it so many times over and over and over again. It stops meaning something other than just something bad. And um, I think you can kind of see that play out with Iggy. Um, everything that is makes him uncomfortable is emo. I I poke fun at it. Even starting with the pilot where Maggie walks in and she's singing Scream by the Misfits. And he says, you know, how dare you desecrate the Misfits because he thinks the Misfits are punk. But Maggie thinks they're goth. And she says that in the <laughs> and she says that in the pilot. So even then, this breaking down of like people trying to dissect things, break them into labels and break them into genres to the point of it no longer making sense. Um, because it, I mean, you could, people have fights. If you really, really want to see it, go on a YouTube comment section, ask a question about the misfits. Who's the best lead singer of the misfits. They will fight over it. What genre are they goth? Are they emo? Are they punk? You will get people to actually fight over this stuff. So it's not that much of a stretch to then have it play into this world and all of these people trying to dissect and divide. And, and it's really the music industry, I think in general is just rife with it, with people wanting to divide and conquer. And this is pop and this is not, and this is this, and this, like you, you just end up with so many labels all for the sake of marketing essentially. And so that way it can fit in a box in a record store when really it's like, how do you define like a really good artist that goes across genres even? So I think um, it almost wrote itself in a sense. The jokes wrote themselves. The characters wrote themselves as I started to um, have them play off of this idea and have them identify with a genre to the point of they became their genre. Maggie became goth. 
Iggy became punk. Ziggy became pop punk. Kimmy became riot girl grunge, like girl punk. Um, and I think, and it just became comical easily because when you try to distill something that's so complex and make it so simple, it, it, you can't help but make it funny. You become a cartoon of yourself whenever you do that. Yeah, it's very caricature. So I I love this conversation about like, how do you define things? And when you really do boil it down to almost a caricature, you lose so much of what makes it art. But I know that you also mentioned that punk is your favorite genre of music. So I'm wondering, what does punk mean to you? That's a, a really... <laughs> I'm going to try to keep this answer as short as possible. Um, punk to me, um, in, in simplest terms, is an, as the attitude. It's all attitude. The reason punk became punk uh, was because it was a response to these epic, long guitar ballads of the 70s. You've got Led Zeppelin. You've got Pink Floyd. They've like, I was just listening. See, I like more than punk. I was listening to Pink Floyd today. They have 15 minute long songs, which they're great. But if you, you're coming at it, looking at music and going, that's too long. Like, why are you? And then you have 80s hair metal. It's so big. It's so flashy. And you're like, like, why? Why do I need makeup? Why do I need spiky shoulder pads and neon lights? That's too much. Oh, not too much, but I'll let you continue. Well, when you're coming at it from that, <laughs> and speaking of stripping it down low budget, you've got some kids that just want to play music and they're like, I can't be Led Zeppelin. I'm not going to be Twisted Sister. Let's write a two-minute song. Do you know how to play a guitar? No, we don't need a guitar solo. We're not Pink Floyd. Let's not have a 10-minute guitar solo. Let's have no guitar solo, three power chords, and let's sing about, I don't know, they're all singing love ballads. Do you want to sing about getting drunk in a bar? ACDC did that. I don't, you, I don't know. You want to sing about huffing glue? Yeah. Let's sing about <laughs> huffing glue. No one's sung about that before. And in this weird way, that, and it's it's just like that fuck you attitude that punk came out of. And going forward from that, um, anything that kind of carries that attitude, um, it, and I, I really want to say that it becomes this thing where when punk became a genre, unfortunately, it became what it was fighting against. It's that very um, animal farm or Wellian thing of you become the thing that you're fighting against when you create your own establishment. So now even like punk is defined, which doesn't make sense. So now you have other people coming along doing what I consider to be punk, um, but they're not quote unquote punk, like Lil Nas X straight up released probably the most punk rock album last year. He released Montero, and that music video is a straight slap in the face to everything he grew up with. It's, it's, he said, you know, I don't know if he actually said this, but in his mind, I see his mind turning. It's like you people, and he picked a group, religious people in power, probably Christian, put me down my entire life for who I was, the color of my skin, my sexual orientation, all of these things. And he was like, watch this. And you watch that music video and you can see him spin it. And he said, you know what? This is me. And he just like he like the Ramones did back in like the 70s. This is us unapologetically. 
I don't care what you think. I'm just going to do it. And it, and it has that kind of attitude to it. So I think punk is much bigger than a genre. If you want to define the genre, you can break it down. Like I said, it's what the Ramones did. It's power chords. It's no guitar solos. It's two and a half minutes. But that's so boring. Yeah. Punk is so much bigger. And I think that's why I hit at the end of the podcast where I landed where I did. Um, because even Doja Cat can be punk in the sense of like women owning their sexuality, something that makes people afraid, something that makes people in power uncomfortable. And I think that if you want to distill it down, punk is doing something that makes the majority, that makes the people in power uncomfortable, whatever it is. Mm, I love that. So I think that you've sort of hit on it here at the end, but I know we got a bit of this with Kimmy, this idea of religious trauma and the ways in which some of these big, you know, evangelical Christian institutions have had a lot of really harmful effects on people. And I'm wondering if you want to talk about where maybe some of that might have come from. Yes. So that's definitely there. Um, I want to say from my own personal experience, I came at it looking at evangelical Christians a lot just because that was my um, upbringing. Um, I, I do want to say before I go into anything specific, um, I do believe when it comes to art in artistic intent, like what the artist writes into it, what I wrote, what I pulled from. However, if you interpreted it a different way, I very much love what listeners put into it, how they feel about it. So I would hope to create a more um, universal I guess, experience if you felt something that wasn't religion or maybe it was a different religion. Maybe you grew up, um, you know, Mormon. Maybe you grew up um, Jewish or what have you, whatever religion it might be. Um, or maybe it wasn't even a religion. Maybe it was a political group. Maybe it was Democrat. Maybe it was Republican. Whatever that thing is, um, I would hope that what I wrote speaks to that. But for me, it was definitely the machine of the ever-present and oppressive white southern evangelical christian thing that seems cult exactly that seems to pervade everything and i think that informed a lot of the characters um it informed a lot of what I was talking about when it comes to punk of taking whatever that thing is that you grew up with that kind of felt like it was crushing you and spinning it and trying to find a way to make, you know, that group uncomfortable and spitting it back in their faces. And so Kimmy um, in episode five is probably the closest I came to just straight up writing an autobiography of myself. Both of my brothers <laughs> Um, and I went to a private school, entire school career. Um, after they listened to the podcast, after listening to that episode, they both individually texted me and said, Hey, um, so this episode, were you talking about our school? And I said, yes. And they're like, I thought so. Like it, it was that on the nose with what I was writing private school, how punks moved around in private school. We found, the one pair of vans you could wear under the dress code. We figured out how to wear band bracelets because they weren't against the dress code. 
the girls dyed their hair as long as it was a quote unquote natural hair color, but they dyed it like Haley Williams or as close to Haley Williams as you could get. Like, I remember all of that and all of the rules, but there were still ways to be punk in that. And I, I definitely included that um, all because I remember it. I remember trying to be a punk in a private school that I didn't want to be at, doing things I didn't want to do, um, getting taught things I didn't want to get taught. I remember our senior year of high school. It was the big deal. Our biology teacher came in and told us, I'm going to teach you evolution. And everyone like gasped, but she's the theory of evolution. She wasn't even allowed to say evolution. She had to say the theory of evolution. And she had to say, I'm bringing you a college textbook because I'm preparing you for college. So it wasn't even she was teaching it to us. She was preparing us for college in the in the quote unquote real world. So this us versus them was something that was embedded in me from such a young age that it was just so easy to write it into this podcast because it just is so pervasive. This like we're punks again. I'm using music genres. I don't know if you can tell from the way I'm talking music genres in place of every kind of in group, whether it's religion, whether it's political, it's just an easy allegory punks versus emos. Well, what's the difference? Make up some rules. Like I said, emo just became a punching bag. Um, You know, punk it, it means so much more, but it's been distilled down. It's been trivialized. Um, we just watched the new Matrix movie, and my one of my favorite lines from it is, what does something in power do to take power away? It trivializes something meaningful. Trivialize emo. Trivialize punk. Turn punk into what happened in the 80s. It's just an amorphous dude with a mohawk biker chick, and they're bad guys. That's not what punk is. It's what the machine turned them into it, trivialized them into something so simple. It takes the complexity away from it. And, and, and I think I would hope in the podcast, I kind of showed that you come out looking like a cartoon and it's, it's childish. It's cartoonish. It's funny. It's very funny. Um, But I don't think anyone wants actually wants to be called an emo zombie or treated like an emo zombie. I hope it came across in the finale that these people weren't actually zombies. They were mind controlled. Yes, but emos aren't inherently zombies. Emos and punks are by Beverly's account, basically the same thing anyway. (laughs) So I like this conversation piece that you hit on just then um, this topic of like basically becoming a cartoon character. And it makes me think a lot about, our wonderful Sean Coster's character. We've got Iggy Rotten here, and he is, I feel, very much an anti-hero, but I'd love to hear what your process was when you were envisioning what an arc would look like for someone that is at times in the show kind of hard to root for, even though he's really the main character. Right, and and so I came at Iggy from a lot of different directions um i i always had since i was a kid i always really liked villains and i always really wanted to write a character that was a villain uh but you didn't realize they were a villain until the very end um like you were rooting for this person you were rooting for this person i know this has been done before but again i was like a kid i didn't know this had been done before i really like this idea of rooting for a person um and then realizing oh 
wait a second, I've... The bad guy. Yeah, not even that. But again, speaking to complexity, it's like he he had good intentions all the way through and all the way down. Um, But I really like this idea of somebody who obviously cared um, and even cared too much and was blind, like blinded themselves in, in the cause as it were. Um, So the ending never really changed a lot. The ending was always going to be Iggy snaps. Um, And the, the details of that did change, but the ending was always going to be, what is the logical conclusion to somebody trying to stick to the rules so much and Iggy is based on me a lot um and you can't stick to the rules that much without snapping cuz you're too rigid um you're it's it's too hard because there's too many rules and whenever you stick to the rules at every point everything is black and white they stop making sense and the world isn't like that and you just become frustrated and you push back harder and you push back harder and you push back harder and for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction he got pushed back and eventually he lost it because it didn't make sense anymore couldn't make sense anymore so you know you have him completely explode on the people around him and, you know, almost killed people. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I know that you've been a bit hesitant to confirm whether or not you would want to do a season two. But if you were to do a season two, could we expect Iggy to be back? Uh, if we did, if I did do a season two, yes, Iggy will be back. Um, we have him. I know if anyone's listened to the the Xmas special, he is back. Um, but trying his best because we all know, you know, you can have a great epiphany moment, but admitting you're wrong and then taking the steps to actually right the wrongs and change your life, like taking those steps is is another journey in and of itself. So I think if season two were to occur, it would be Iggy learning. Of course, there's the curve um, in his own way how to make sense of how does he love his brother even though he's out as an emo. Um, I'm using words like out and things like that on purpose because it's how do you learn when your your brother comes out as emo or when your like, very good friend that you love, Beverly, if it's his ex, but someone he loves, is uh, like a pop kid. Like, and you have, and how do you make sense of that or how do you learn to move past those words? And just say, oh, that's my brother Ziggy. He likes emo music. Oh, he also likes punk music too. Um, He's an emo. Wait, I can't just like call him one word because you can't call a person one word because it doesn't make (laughs) it doesn't make sense. People are complex. So to take a brief detour, I know we've been really philosophical so far in the interview, but I wanted to talk about. I guess some of the production stuff that was really different for you. So I know that you've done plenty of directing in the past, but what was it like to direct people remote? And in some cases, you know, with Sean, I know in particular, 
getting recordings sent to you and then having to give notes and send them back. So can you talk a little bit about what the process was like as a director working with actors during a pandemic when you can't be in person with most of them? Yeah, this was the hard part. Well, it was easy and it was hard Um, all at the same time. So whenever I wrote the scripts and I showed them to Sean, he's someone who's worked with me through all of my projects since college. He's given me notes. So um, in a sense, it did help that he understands my tone. He understands what I'm going for. Uh, However, when he did agree to be Iggy, he saw all of Iggy's lines in the scripts. Um, (laughs) If you couldn't tell, if you were to look at the script, over half of each script is Iggy. (laughs) Um, And he agreed to be Iggy very graciously, but um, he said that his condition was he he needed to record on his own time because we, you know, scheduling conflicts, we can't just sit down and like, hammer out a script in five hours he needed more time than that so he did record by himself um i trusted him a lot he was always open to re-record i didn't have to re-record a lot but what ended up happening was he sent me hours and hours of recording and he gave me every single line reading every which way it could have ever been done um which was great Uh, But I had to listen to all of it and then decide which one uh, was the best one, which didn't as since we were all recorded separately, wasn't always apparent um, because I'm like, oh, he sounds a little sad here. Oh, he sounds a little more angry here. Uh, But I didn't know what he was playing off of yet because, you know, I hadn't recorded with Katie or I hadn't recorded with Chelsea or or whoever. Um, So that reaction needed to wait for, you know, for me to pick the best take from somebody else. Um, And what that really came down to was having a really clear vision of what I wanted and trusting what I wrote, which I know I'm the writer, but in the director, but it's hard to do sometimes because you start getting in your own head, especially me, speaking of like overthinking, overly philosophical. (laughs) It's like, you have to really trust what you wrote and trust when someone says, oh, I liked that script and say, okay, you know what? I wrote it to sound this way and we can't really deviate. Like I did let the actors play around a little bit, uh, but at the end of the day, we couldn't change lines a lot because some of the jokes stopped working if you changed words too much. Um, So it really came down to... um, really kind of making sure everyone had a clear sense of what was going on and trusting at the end of the day that if we recorded it that way, that it was going to come together because I recorded out Katie in one night. It was a long night, but it was like all in one night. We just did it all. And I had to go through it and trust that by the time I hit hit episode eight, what we recorded two months ago was going to line up with what I recorded with Michael, you know, a month after that and a month before the finale hit. And I had to trust that that was all going uh, to come together. And it was a little um, nerve wracking. So in that sense, it was hard to keep all of those pieces together, but also easy because it, it forced me to stay on track. There was no room to sit and play. It was, this is it. We're going to record it this way. Um, we're going to work it. Um, so, so yeah, it was hard because of that but also easy because it it didn't allow even me didn't even really allow me to deviate a whole lot from what what the blueprint was i love that and this was another uh first for you during this podcast i directed you during all of zach's lines so i would love to hear what it was like to work with 
the formidable director that is your wife. <laughs> That's true. It, wa- it wasn't my first time acting. Um, it might have been my first time acting well if that's any indication of your directing ability. Oh, thank you. Um, I acted in high school when I forced my friends to be in in films, in short films with me. We don't need to bring them up. They weren't good. <laughs> um, I wasn't good. We won't say I was acting supremely well on this, but we will say I'm listenable um, as Zach. And it was interesting. I think the the weirdest thing for me was I didn't originally write Zach to be played by me. Um, budget constraints led me to becoming (laughs) Zach. So that was really interesting, having to spit my own words back at myself. Um, And I think Zach got the biggest rewrite, not words-wise, but tone-wise, because I wrote him to be um, more low-key stoner kid. He was basically the stoner kid from Dazed and Confused in my head, uh, but gay, basically. Um, And... As I started playing that, I realized I couldn't play that low and I couldn't play that down. Um, It just came across weird. It didn't sound sincere to me or anything. Um, So Zach became a little bit more manic as I started talking. And your notes were extremely helpful, speaking of your directing, um, because you kept telling me to go bigger and higher and louder, which is not what I wrote. So I kind of had to leave what I wrote to the side and trust your directing and what you thought was funny um, to kind of explore what Zach could be as this kind of cartoon character in this weird cartoon world that I created. Um, and it was nice. It was actually nice having you as a director because um, you listened to me rant and talk about this podcast a lot and you knew about the characters because I talked about them all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot about the podcast. And I'm wondering if this experience for you of seeing the way that direction, you know, was sort of inspired by your performance and the dialogue there, do you think anything will change about your directing in the future after being on the other side, maybe more... I guess, with more intention than your your cute high school videos that are on the internet if y'all search hard enough. Yes. So my directing um, is uh, changing and in, in a few ways, actually. I think I took a, a lot of cues from you in the way that you directed me, knowing what helped, um, the way you would point out specific things. Um, yes, motivation is important. Yes, motivation is helpful. I already knew that stuff. Um, but what I didn't know was, I think it sounded funny, uh, but you were like, it sounded flat. And in my head, it sounded much bigger. So it's like, and then you would say that one word or the end of this word, go higher. Like, I remember when we were doing the Xmas episode, you were like, cool, I liked your scream whenever Zach does like their whole scream thing. Uh, but it needs to be more high pitched because that's funnier. It was funnier when you went high pitched than whenever you just did kind of like a low gravelly. Um, so seeing those things, hearing those things, um, trying to get myself out of my own way. Um, yeah, I think, I think I learned a lot getting to hear you, um, give me notes. Great. I'm so glad I could help. And on that note, you and I did a lot of work together as well with me being Maggie. And we also worked on the song together. 
And so I wonder for you, what was that experience like? I know sometimes for spouses working together, there's fear, I think, of tension. But what was your experience like directing me as an actress and then, you know, working with me and collaborating with me on the instrumentals for the song? Yeah, I think um, it wasn't that hard. Um, Again, knowing that you liked the source material, knowing your opinion of music. We have very similar taste in music. Um, and I know that you kind of liked the character. I kind of wrote the character knowing you were going to play her. Not that I view you as a villain. <laughs> but Important caveat. There. Yes, my wife is not a villain um, most days. <laughs> but I knew that this was a character that you would get and you would like uh so i it wasn't hard for me to just kind of give you the reins when it came to the song when it came to writing the song um it was almost kind of a relief for me to give that to you because i had so much other stuff to worry about it was nice to be like i know if i say the words you know this is maggie's song just make it as like emo as fucking possible (laughs) i knew that what you came up with i wouldn't really have to worry about it um so yeah i think in a sense it made it easier because i knew i could i I could trust you with it good well i'm glad that that was that that was a nice experience for you but speaking of the music obviously music was the backbone of this entire project but one of the coolest things that i think was a part of every episode was the music so the individual songs that you reached out to artists and there is a song on every single episode and I know that that was quite the process but do you want to talk a little bit about how you chose which artists to reach out to and some of the inspiration behind the songs that you picked um so at first um you know when I first wanted to do the podcast um it was a lot more amorphous there was no story really it was a little more welcome to Night Vale very episodic And something that I wanted to do was almost like an, I almost toyed with a fictional interview episode. So originally, whenever I was looking for the the podcast and the artist, I was like, who can I actually get in a room and have this fictional character interview? So I, I have friends that are musicians. So I was like, okay, I really like supporting small, local, if possible, like up and coming artists. Let's do that. Um, so a lot of my initial picks for songs came out of um, who I was already going to ask, like Nikki, who did get an interview, which I did that episode as an inspiration for what the podcast was originally going to be. Um, so that was an easy an easy pick. Um, you know, my coworker at the time, friend Angelo, I knew he did music, so he was an easy pick. Um, but, you know, you very quickly run out of people to talk to because you think you have a lot of musician friends and then you realize you have like three but you have eight (laughs) episodes to fill and then to find eight songs with artists that are willing to give you their song becomes a much more difficult process so after about like two or three like two or three songs in i was like i'm i'm out i had nikki i had um terminally ill through a friend um i had angelo 
And I knew you were doing a song. I had asked Nikki to write a song. Like, Hell Rose didn't even exist yet um, whenever <laughs> we first did the podcast. I know. So that wasn't even a song option. It was just Nikki writing the theme song. So I was like, oh, how do I find artists? I can't call up, you know, Sony. I can't just call up Capitol Records. I can't afford this. What now? And that was scary. Um, so I, I did the thing that this is, we'll say this is social media. Social media is good for something. Everyone kept saying in the pandemic, your favorite artists are bored. Message them, message them. They're bored. And I said, no, no, (laughs) but I did. I did it. I, I went and I, I was following a couple bands. Um, Renee Phoenix was one of them. She's absolutely one of my favorite artists right now. And I just, I messaged her on Instagram, social media, good for something. And she responded. She was totally down, ready to go. Let me use her song Swallow. And after that, it was kind of like uh, all downhill from there. It was much easier because I went for someone who I never would have thought I could have gotten on the podcast. And after that, it was just, it was a, a downhill slide of like, I can ask anybody now even down to Cosmic Kitten in the finale. I didn't have a song for the finale. Um, and and I didn't know who I was going to use. And I went and saw Hell Rose perform live. And they opened for Cosmic Kitten. And after the show, I started following them on Instagram. And I messaged them. And I said, hey, I just went to your show. They turned out to be really cool people. They had a cameo. Like, all of this stuff. I talk to them regularly now. All because... I saw them live. So you never know who you're going to see. Go see small local concerts. You don't have to go to the forum. You don't have to go to like a giant venue to go see Green Day. Please go see Green Day if you can. But also go see local artists. They're super cool. And you're probably going to see someone really great. I love that. And so a lot of people that are listening to this. Well, I guess I don't know. I don't know how many people that are listening to this are familiar with your other work. But I think, obviously, for those of us that have seen it, Perfidia is another very big example of the way that your writing has been inspired by music. And I wonder if that's something that you anticipate continuing. There seems to be just such a strong relationship between music and writing for you. Yeah, it's funny that that you bring that up because the whole music thing... Um, has become new, not music in my life. I've always really loved music. It just never, for whatever reason, occurred to me to blend the two of them together. Um, I don't know why. Um, One of my favorite directors is Edgar Wright. He obviously does it, not even, you know, even with Baby Driver, Last Night in Soho, the way he does music in his Cornetto trilogy. Like, you can just tell he just loves and gets music. Uh, Martin Scorsese does it. So it's like, I don't know why it never occurred to me to just blend it. In what I was writing, and um, for whatever reason, with Perfidia, it finally clicked. And that was the first time, I think, that I really tried to use music in a story. And it worked really well. And so I felt more comfortable writing in that. And so, yes, I think I've started leaning more in that direction um, when it comes to my writing. So kind of going forward, I'm going to see how far that rabbit hole Uh, can take me um, because I've had a few other examples. There's a few short stories 
um, that I've written that have been music based, but, but I think it's something I'm I'm looking to do a little more of. I love that. And for listeners who don't know, Perfidia is a fantastic short film that Eric wrote and directed. And maybe you can link it in the description here. Yeah, it'll be pretty easy. I'm going to link to my website. It's got all of my short stories, a couple examples of scripts, um, short films, including Perfidia um, that I've made. So you'll kind of get a chance to see um, a little bit of everything. You'll see an example of the first time I worked with Katie, who voiced Kimmy. I made a short film with her um, a couple of years ago called Long Distance. Um, very heavy. You'll you'll hear a lot of music. Um, I asked my friends for use of the music, so I think that was the first time I'd ever kind of tapped friends um, that were musicians to use in my projects. So you'll hear all the music you hear in that are all friends <laughs> that I asked for music. So um, it was kind of a cool way to to get Katie back, um, also for kind of a music project. I like that. I like that. So I know that you've worked with Katie before. And you've worked with Sean before on plenty of projects, but there were a couple of newcomers for you as far as working with them as actors go. So do you want to talk about what it was like for you to get to work with, you know, let's just start with Michael because I'm also longtime friends with him. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting one uh, because I met Michael through you Um And it was kind of intimidating to ask him, uh, because if you're in Los Angeles, uh, Michael puts on a fantastic comedy show. If you mention Michael Monsoor's name to another stand-up comic in L.A., they will probably know him and they'll go, oh, my God, Michael, he's great. I love him. He's so funny. And everyone knows him. He has credits, uh, something I don't really have unless it's something I made he's in. Everybody wants some. He's in Righteous Gemstones. He's in Blackout, Rami Malek's podcast. So he even has podcast credits. Like, it's it was kind of intimidating, like, because, yes, we are friends. Uh, but it's one thing to be friends with someone. It's another thing to be like, hey, um, I wrote a script. Do you want to, like, maybe, like, help me out a little bit without it sounding like you're just trying to ride their coattails? But I legitimately wanted to work with him. Um, so I, I kind of used a trick. Um, that I learned from listening to other uh, directors and interviews talk about getting actors they wanted. I wrote the part for him because <laughs> I'd seen his stand-up comedy th- and I knew what his uh, quote-unquote comedy persona was. So I wrote that exactly. I was like, I've heard your jokes. I'm basically just going to write you like your comedy persona as a character. And whenever I first called him up, that's basically what I told him. I told him the, I told him what, the kind of the gist was um, I told him I would work with his schedule, but I wrote him a character. I wanted him to check it out. And uh, yeah, he loved it. And I am glad he did uh, because yeah, the character was crafted just for him. I also know that Chelsea has some credits now as well. So you ended up with a really, I think a very strong cast. What was it like working with Chelsea on this project? It was interesting working with Chelsea. I'd never worked with her professionally. Um, I had worked with her before, but that was because we were in film school together. Um, but we'd never actually worked on anything outside of like a student film project. Uh, so it was really cool getting to like kind of call her up basically um, and ask her if she was interested because I knew she had some credits. Um, she'd been in some stuff that I'd seen. She's even produced her own show um, that I'd, I'd, I'd seen. So I knew that she 
would be really good for the character seeing what she's done since we graduated um but it was yeah fun getting to like a blast from the past getting to like talk to her um and getting her you know to to be a part of of the collaborate with her because again she had credits um i'd kind of seen her at least learning back in school kind of I'd seen her style, and and so I kind of knew where she might be coming from, but it was kind of a cool thing, getting to kind of like have a little mini reunion through collaboration and kind of what we're both doing now. So that was kind of a like a fun thing. And it worked for her character, because that's basically what her character is. Her character is like that blast from the past mini uh, mini reunion kind of deal. I love that. So you got a bit of a reunion with Chelsea and with Katie. On yeah. This, which was awesome. So... On, you know, the note of talking about acting, obviously, Zach was not originally, I guess, intended to be voiced by you. But I think I would argue that Zach is probably one of the most punk characters in the show. And so what was it like for you to be voicing a character that is not just queer, but is also, you know, genderqueer? And especially when you consider it in this world of, like, the music industry and genres. And I know earlier you were talking about like using one word to describe people. What was that experience like for you? That I think is where Zach changed the most. Cause whenever I, I have to kind of rewind back to when I originally envisioned Zach, Zach was a stoner conspiracy theorist, um, drag queen. Basically, like that was Zach was kind of this weird enigma playing off of punk because a lot of queer culture came out of 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 punk Um, and a lot of them queer culture found refuge in it. Like you've got, um, you know, the the New York Dolls, you've got Wayne County and the electric chairs, you've got all of these, you know, older bands um, presenting in a non-conforming way that that people um, really gravitated towards, and I and I remember in my weird caricature, cartoony way, I wanted Zach to encapsulate that. So that's why in episode two, a lot of the bands discussed are queer in some way, whether the singers are gay, lesbian, uh, drag, whether they're trans what have you all of these bands are kind of brought up and discussed or at least referenced in some way in that episode um because that's what zach was drawn to in the punk genre in the same way that with kimmy she talks a lot about the girl punk stuff because that's what she's drawn to in the punk genre episode three is a lot about pop punk because that is what ziggy was drawn to in the punk genre etc etc so with zach um, I really wanted to talk about that because I think that's something that got lost when talking about punk. It's coming back around. I know we talk a lot about the Muslims. We talk a lot about other bands that it's coming back around for. But a lot of that stuff, again, speaking about trivializing something meaningful, pop punk buried a lot of the queer culture and punk by using, I like Blink-182, but it's a lot of misogynistic juvenile homophobic jokes that were very popular in the early 2000s and so a lot of that stuff got buried in punk and i wanted to kind of resurrect it with zach and it meant a lot to me to do that being someone who is queer uh being somebody who was just trying to figure out being you know gender fluid non-binary you know bisexual all of these things 
trying to figure that out. And whenever I started playing Zach, Zach stopped becoming just like a gay drag queen. And and again, I can't act that well. So just I was like, okay, let's write and almost use this character as therapy for myself to explore this. And what does punk mean to me in this context? What do these bands mean to me to hear, you know, like Bikini Kill screaming, like, suck my left one. And hearing, like, the New York Dolls singing about Frankenstein, but, like, in their context and, um, you know, all of these these bands singing about this stuff that's very much, and you can tell, is directed at the fact that they can't walk down the street without getting called a slur, can't walk down the street without getting beat up or made fun of or something. Um, and that's where all that stuff when I've like, I found a band called pansy division, again, taking a, the word pansy. It's a group of gay men in a punk band, hilarious, like, and they're so punk and so awesome. Um, so getting to kind of explore what punk means to that subculture, one that I was just trying to identify myself in finally, um, after the we discussed the religious private school. So it became playing Zach kind of became a therapy. And that's I think Zach's character changed the most from um, I don't know if anyone else can hear it, but I can hear it from episode two all the way to the Xmas special. Um, Zach's character does kind of, I think, come into their own a lot more because um, yeah, Zach's character in my mind changed a lot from what I wrote on paper for somebody else to play to me inserting myself into the show, basically, which kind of makes sense because punk meant so much to me and helped me survive um, a, essentially a very oppressive culture growing up. It kind of gave me that uh, rah, rah, fuck you, at least in my own bubble. It's like an outlet. Yeah, to do that when I couldn't do that safely, actually, in in reality. Um, so uh, it was kind of fun to, to insert myself as a character. Again, a little more of a caricature because it had to be funny and it had to be super overblown. It couldn't just be true to life. But it did give me kind of that outlet to kind of at least be there. So, so mm-hmm. that was an interesting experience. So I hope everyone liked Zach uh, because yeah, that was nerve wracking to do that. Well, I think you don't give yourself enough credit. You did act it very well, which, you know, I'm sure probably had something to do with the fantastic directing, but of course, every actor (laughs) needs a director. Exactly. But on that note, I, I would love to just sort of close out with something maybe a little bit more fun. I know we've gotten into some really great, awesome philosophical things but who are your favorite bands like what are your biggest musical influences if you had to pick three? Oh, that is so oh, hard i know i'm cruel it's an ever shifting and ever changing landscape well as of what are, what day are we recording so as of january 3rd 2022 what are your top three musical influences well i'm gonna today? go i'm gonna go easy i'm gonna go easy for number one number one is david bowie I don't know if you could tell, there are multiple David Bowie references in the show. Absolute genius. As as there should be in any podcast that is about music, there needs to be multiple Bowie references. If you want to talk about music being magic, David Bowie is truly 
in a non, just in the most literal sense, a magician. Yeah. He inserts the occult. He inserts, um, you know, runes and little symbols. And he, if you want to actually make music magic and truly weave a spell, like, not even kidding, in the most literal sense, mm-hmm. David fucking Bowie did it. Yeah, just go listen to Hunky Dory. Hunky Dory, Black Star. <laughs> like, he truly, I don't know how he ta- he tapped into something. Um, truly, truly a master um, of 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 the craft magically mm. and musically um, other bands that I'm really into right now. I know that we um, talked a lot about um, the Muslims very much into the Muslims right now, New York based uh, queer black, amazing doing amazing riffs on uh, pop punk doing amazing riffs just on, on classic punk pop like it's it's this blend of of old punk new punk and whatever the fuck they want to play very much very much digging them right now Um, i do want to give a special shout out um to my uncle david he does listen to the podcast if you're listening to this hi shout out to you um i'm gonna say the clash um and here's why (laughs) so the reason the clash is in the podcast and featured so heavily is because when I was first getting into records, like moving, like you can say pretentious, but getting into records, um, he had a big part in that. And um, I really like records. I do listen to, I have Apple Music. I listen to digital music. I That is totally okay if you listen to digital music. Something to me, I like handling a record. I like holding it. It it does things for my anxiety. It helps me connect with the music. So I really enjoy that and just putting on a record. And the first couple of records he got me were all Clash records. Um, no, I don't actually have London Calling on vinyl. I wrote that into the podcast because everyone knows what London Calling is. Um, but yeah, he gave me Clash records. And so I have like a really deep nostalgia for the Clash um, so I always like listening to them. So I, I will also say, um, I will also for number three, say the clash for that reason. Um, I don't know. It just kind of has a special place now. Also something about gifting music. Like if you are gifted a record by somebody or you gift a record to somebody for whatever reason it might be, um, I think there's something special to that. And and now I can say my uncle also likes My Chemical Romance. Sorry to all the punks out there. Turning him into an emo zombie. (laughs) I gave him the Black Parade because that album, when it came out, meant so much to me. I love it so much. And um, he gave me The Clash. So I was like, I'm going to give you something new. Here's the Black Parade. And so so there's something about that exchange that I think is so cool and magical. I'm going to say magic again because I believe music is magic. Um, you know, that is, I think, so special. So I love that. So to close out before I ask you for your plugs, do you have a favorite memory from the making of this podcast? This was a very, very long process, y'all. I cannot emphasize that enough, but I know there were a lot of special moments and I wonder if there's one in particular that maybe sticks out to you. (laughs) Um... There are a few um, ad-libbing with Michael definitely up there. He cracked me up. Uh, but there was one specific moment 
I do remember um, and probably will never forget. So I know I mentioned when recording with Sean um, that I would just give him the scripts and he would record and send it back to me. And I would just have to listen to everything he gave me. One of my favorite memories has to be when he sent me the recordings for the finale. In the original script, I did write that Iggy kind of half sings bro him. Um, but um, it had been interesting. I liked throwing song references at Sean because he doesn't really listen to music a lot or especially punk music. So he didn't get like half or over half the references in the podcast. I had to explain them all to him, essentially. He'd be like, I think this is a joke. It plays like a joke. I don't get it, though. So I would have to explain to him what it was. And then I realized I'd have to go a step further and like, explain who the band was and who the singer was and and all these things that like I thought you would just get um, just because he didn't have that point of reference. So I was like, okay, Sean's going to maybe half sing bro him. Maybe. He's going to maybe give me something. Um, and I and I originally wrote it to where it was going to be this muddled, like, kind of funny, kind of like, he's kind of talking, chanting. But I, I remember whenever I, this was take one, he he did a couple of takes, but he nailed it on take one. I clicked play one, take one. This was, we had, I had just started listening to the finale stuff and I had my headphones on and he comes on and he starts talking and then he launches in to bro him and this is the take that i used in in the episode where he just full-on belted the song and i was not ready for that (laughs) i was ready but i was not ready for that come to find out sean actually knew the song because bro him is the the song that the ducks use and he's a big hockey fan sean if you're listening yes i'm giving the ducks a shout out on die Emo's die anaheim ducks um and he knew the song so he wanted to do it right and by god he fucking did it i remember i listened to the take i almost had tears in my eyes i was just laughing so hard and i remember i pulled my headphones off and i like yelled downstairs at you and i said you have to come upstairs and listen to what sean did and that was just (laughs) i just loved it i just i love being surprised as a director and sean blew me away laughed couldn't stop laughing i just that's one of my favorite parts in the podcast even i just love listening to sean sing bro him I love that. Well, I can't I can't stress enough what a pleasure it was to listen to this, to work on it with you, to direct you, to work on songs with you, to be directed by you, and again, just to listen to it. I think this project has been something that I hope you're so proud of because it is so special, and I know I've really, really valued all of the work you put into this. So if people want to find you elsewhere where can they find you other than you know just this podcast uh the easiest way to find me is my website because everything links from my website my website's very easy to find it's my name ericlarner.com and i'm gonna link it in the episode description from there you can find um, my previous work 
The Adventure of Paperman, my young adult fiction book series. Um, so if you're listening to this and you know any kids that are ages like 10 to 12, if you're ages 10 to 12, I hope you weren't listening to Die Emos Die. Yeah. Uh, please. What are your parents doing? Right? Um, or maybe they're super cool. Um, in any case, <laughs> fucking rock on. And you can buy the books there. Um, you can find my short stories. You can find my short films scripts, all of it. It's all on my website, linked to social media through the website to um, kind of your one-stop shop for me, basically. So check it out. Fantastic. Well, I think that it's only right that you do the final sign-off. All right, everybody. I know Shannon's interviewing me, but this has been Eric Larner and Shannon Larner. Stay on track and punk as fuck. Bye.